This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Legend of Vi Moore, and the author and poet is Mike Hemingway, and Mike joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mike. Hello, how are you? Well, first of all, I would like to read what you've written about your book to just set the stage for our discussion. You say this, With echoes of King Arthur and Faust, and written in the style of the ancient mariner, the legend of Vaisalimor is a story of how a family of medieval knights and a brave innkeeper battle an evil overlord and Satan himself to save a silent maiden. Complete with sea monsters, the mysterious red tower and a lightning tree, the story's true message is about family love and the family bond. Well, this is a great challenge for the writer you Mike, to be able to uh, put this whole story in rhyme, and it's quite a story, a mysterious old world feel, all the way back to the 1300s. Why did you do this? Yes, I write in rhyme, really, because when I was young, I used to read a lot of work, a lot of poems, if you like, a lot of stories, like the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And I love the way they were written, because they evoked in my mind tremendous imagery. And I thought I'd like to tackle that genre, and when I had the idea for The Legend of Vice Salimor, I decided to write it in rhyme. So that was the background for it. And the storyline, where did that come from? I don't really know. Uh, I think as most authors, most authors would say the storyline comes suddenly, but I had a view that I wanted to tell a story that was great fun to read, was very fast, highly visual, but at the center had a message. Um, I'm a very lucky father. I've got four lovely boys. I've got also got a 20-year gap between my boys. And uh, so I'm a father for the second time. And I was trying to write down how I could be perhaps a better father second time round and decided to write it in a way that uh, would make a good story to read and hopefully help fathers in my situation or even children to understand how important it is to have a good, strong family bond and what a great role a father can play. So this is a story about a father, and even though it takes us all the way back into the 1300s, you use this kind of period in time to create this incredible, fascinating story to, again, focus on that relationship. You feel really strongly about this, don't you? I do. Um, in all my work I do, I've been, in all my commercial work, my professional work, I still put humility and generosity at the heart of everything. In this particular story, I uh, feel that when the father reads to his children, the father will find out something about himself as he reads. So not only does the listener learn something and enjoy something, I think the father, especially in the chapter called The Tower, will suddenly stop and realize the story is about himself. And uh, so that is that is what I feel is important, and that is why I uh, created the story. And also, in rhyme, emotions uh, can be created at a much more concentrated level, so you feel that emotion, don't you? Even though I know it's an incredible challenge to do this, like you said, it was a kind of a form of torture, uh, putting everything into rhyme. It is. It's about a rhyme a day because you want to make it easy to read. You want to make it effortless. You don't want them really to notice the rhyme. But if you change one word, suddenly you realize you've used that word before, then it's kind of domino effect. So you have to, have to keep going up and down. And you have to decide where the rhyme is. Is it at the end of the sentence? Is it in the middle of the sentence? And, of course, the speed of the rhyme. You, you speed up or slow down to, uh, for that effect. But whilst it is, it is torture, when you get it right, it is very rewarding. Well, The Legend of I, Sally Moore, follows the story of the knights. Tell us about the knights. Well, the knights, uh, there are three knights. There's a father knight called Elgrid, and he has got a daughter and a son, an elder daughter called Suleva, and a son called Cor Evan. And they are what is called errant knights, knight errants. They are essentially mercenaries. 
that ride around in full armor and are employed by various people either to joust at festivals or to literally fight for them in the huge amount of wars that were taking place in Europe throughout this time. So the three knights, Elgrid the knight, Suleva, and Corevan the sun. And of course, the great evil overlord and Satan himself, is that who we're talking about in the uh, kidnapping of his daughter? Well, what it is is that there are several characters in this. There are the good ones and the bad ones. This is a classic tale of good and evil, sword and sorcery. Um, it takes place in... There is an evil overlord, if you like. He's called um, Vogel, Graf Vogel. Um, he has sold his soul to the devil and for many years has ruled this land, terrorized the land. Um, in, in the um, Kozolin, the place actually does exist. On the, on the Gora Chelmska there, which does exist, there's a pub, an inn, which is run by an innkeeper called Bar Simon. He has adopted a girl a long time ago with, that was left on his doorstep who's never, ever spoken a word. She was completely silent and has been completely silent throughout her life. She's called the Maiden Jane. And outside the um, inn, there is a, the mysterious red tower, which also plays a role. And, of course, part of the the entertainment, uh, the entertaining value of this, besides the uh, rhyme, are the beautiful illustrations that take you right into this mysterious old world. That's right. The illustrations were done to give the book an old feel, essentially taken from the idea of storybooks from about the 1880s, 1890s. Um, so there, there's about 17 full-page illustrations there which help people understand the content of each of the many chapters. Uh, the overall feel was giving it a feel, the overall feel was giving the book uh, an aura of medieval times, and so they complement each other. They, there's something mysterious about them, but they're, they're very rich and very colorful and fun to look at. At points, the story could be sad, but you believe also inspiring. That's right. I believe loss is a big part of life, and it's how you deal with loss. Yes, um, the work I do, as I said, I did the Dove Real Beauty campaign, and a lot of that is dealing with, you know, the uh, sadness that beauty brings as well as uh, the joy. So I feel that you can evoke an emotion in the, in, in the reader's mind if you talk about loss. But uh, the inspiration in this is that these knights errant um, come across a, something happens, a kidnap happens at this inn, and this, this evil Graf Vogel kidnaps this silent maid on, this, on the start of her 16th birthday. And the innkeeper says, you know, you realize that he's in league with the devil, and you're going to need new, you're going to need new weapons. And the only place you'll find this we these weapons is in the, in the mysterious Red Tower. And the story really takes shape from the time that the three knights go into the Red Tower. And the Red Tower is controlled by the evil overlord? No, the Red Tower, well, it's on his land. But no, the Red Tower, everything, there's a huge amount of allegory going through this. But the Red Tower is mysterious. No one's, any, no one's ever been in it. And, um, but they feel there's a good force in there, the only good force in this area that's really run by an evil, an evil man. So they go in, and um, as they go in, they, all they hear is a voice. And this voice, you don't know, I don't let the, the reader know if it's male or female, but a it's a very soft voice that just tells them to come upstairs. And if you like, I can say what the voice, as these three knights take off their weapons and put their swords down and go up, the room upstairs, I can read you an, uh, a chapter from the book, which Please. gives you the first glimpse of what happens. As the knights, as the three knights go up uh, these, these stairs, they walk into a small round room, and um, this is what happens. Um, first of all, that the, uh, the elder of the knight asks with this voice, who are you? And the voice refuses to answer the question, but then the voice says, and I read now from the book. The soft voice said, you must have faith. That's how all good begins. But would you now do what I say? And each put on a ring. These, these rings, they mean unending love. Each ring, it has three stones. The stones are you, each precious you. One love, three hearts, one home. Now, Elgrid, please embrace your king. Yes, hold your children close. And open up your heart to them. And say what means the most. And ask them of their hopes and dreams and ask what makes them cry. And say how much you love them. 
and why that love won't die. And then, really, the following two verses are the key to the whole story. I'll just continue and read these two verses. Elgrid the knight looked in the eyes of his daughter and his son, and saw the tears that through the years had never dared to run. The voice had found his deepest truth. He knew the voice was right. To be a father was much harder than to be Elgrid the knight. Very well put. And, and one of your weapons that the knights learn eventually is the power of love. That's exactly it. They had everything, but they didn't have any relationship. The children knew their father, but really as the knight. Uh, but they didn't feel him. Uh, he never had the time to express because men feel it difficult to express emotions. But they never, they never had really spoken about it. But the red tower and the voice encouraged them to put on these rings, which were a symbol of their love. And then suddenly, they find this family bond, this family strength, and. Um, they leave the tower, they haven't got any more weaponry, but they've found themselves. And then they head off, and Bar Simon the innkeeper, they head off north, 12 miles north, to this very strange uh, strip of sand. It actually exists, it goes on for nearly 30 miles, it's only 12, feet, 12 yards across. And it stands between an inland lake and the Baltic Sea. And so they leave the tower with this new relationship, this strength, and head north to uh, try and get the maiden back. But then. Well, hell breaks loose. Well, why don't you read some more? Take us there. Well, I think the, the last point I'd like to say is that as they leave the, um, as they leave the tower, um, the last verse of the tower section, which is the key section, says, and in the, ta- sorry, and in the tower, the soft voice sighed, please all of you take care, then whispered, when you need me, I promise I'll be there. So I'll describe... I won't read it just yet, but I'll describe what happens, because basically they ride north to where uh, the, the silent maid has been tied to a lightning tree. A lightning tree is a tree that's been hit by lightning. And the evil graph has tied um, the girl to, the, to this tree, and uh, they have to go up and rescue her. But the, there, there, there is a problem. The, the graph who is in league with the devil, has also summoned up extra help, and these come in the form of uh, sea beasts. These are grim-looking creatures that look like a cross between a bear and a snake. So if you like, I can read you um, something about that. Please, I saw the illustrations. They are menacing-looking. The Maiden Jane is tied to this lightning tree, which is black, uh, with fingers, like evil bent fingers. And the the story reads that she's tied on a strip of sand to this lightning tree, and, and the page reads, Soon the sea began to swell, and seven shapes did form. Ghastly, ghostly guests of hell, unto the sea they swarmed. The seven tides were Satan's brides, they hunted in dark waters. They came to land at his command, and, and to carry out his orders. Round and round the tree they crept, all glaring at poor Jane. At dawn they'd drag her out to sea, down to their dark domain. So that gives you a kind of feeling. There's this poor maiden surrounded by these evil, grim, uh, I call them the tides, but they are like, they look like a cross between a bat and a snake, and uh, with the evil graph Fogel there. That's what the knights are up against. Well, everything you're telling me, it sounds like it has a happy ending. Happy ending is always nice, but I think what I'd like to do is inspire, because one of the key points of the, of, of the story is Yes, you can get close to your children, but just sort of make sure it's not too late. There's never a good time, apart from today, just to say to your family and say to your children how much you love them. But um, there are a couple of, I think, inspiration lines which particularly help illustrate this point. And this is where they, the knights, they all are about to, <clears throat> excuse me, the knights, they all are about to go down the strip of sand towards the lightning tree to graft Vogel and these evil beasts around it. And they almost say a quick prayer before they head down the strip of sand. And it goes like this. The knight then knelt down by his sword and bowing pledged to Jane, then placed one hand upon the hilt and the others did the same. And as their hands all came together, the ring the voice had given sent out a light it was so bright it seemed to shine on heaven. 
And in this night, Eldred, the night spoke words they would remember. Whatever fate for us awaits, we'll always be together. Well, you say it takes about 20 minutes to read this book, parents reading it to their children, but then you conclude with this thought, but its message should last a lifetime. Well, I agree, and uh, what a great work. Uh, thank you so much, Mike Hemingway. Uh, tell us how to get your book. Go onto Amazon Books, and you'll find it there under The Legend of Vysanimore. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for being on Author Talk. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure, Steve. Thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. That was Mike Hemingway, author and poet of his book, The Legend of Vysanimore. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs, and together let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time. With author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Youth was sad, right? Cause he had a death kill mommy and dad. Right. But that ain't the case. Nope. It wasn't his fate. No, nope. the walls never struggled to communicate. Y'all wave your hands. Look who's on. It's the code of man Keith, and he's number one. It's that Keith Wine Show on Toginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, that Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wine, and end the show, go to his website, KeithWan.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Don't miss that Keith Wan Show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Financial Straight Talk, Road to Retirement. And the author is Dee Mosier, and Dee joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dee. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, I'm doing great, and it's great to have you on the show, Dee. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read some things you have written about your book so everyone knows exactly what we're going to focus on. Financial Straight Talk, Road to Retirement, is a book about saving and planning for retirement and life's other issues. It is written in a light manner with cartoons. Well, I have to say that's very different with a financial book. <laughs> and that's for sure. <laughs> yes, and it's your goal. You say it's my goal by the end of this book for the reader to be comfortable enough to make their own decisions regarding investments. And if they're not, it will allow them to be comfortable asking any financial consultant the right questions. Well, that's really key as well. Well, I guess let's first talk about your background, Dee. You have been at this for many years. Right. Um, over 30 years, actually, Steve. I started when I was five, of course. And uh, when I first began in the industry, it was interesting. I was one of only a few women. I actually started in Illinois, and for the company I was working for in those days, which uh, has, is now owned by Shearson American Express, um, <clears throat> I was really the first woman in Illinois that they hired and when I went into management I was one of two in the United States so I was an odd commodity in those days 
That's for sure, but obviously you've stayed very focused and learned a lot and been successful. And by using uh, this book to help people, I guess a first question people would say, well, boy, there are a lot of books on investments. Why should someone choose your book over all the others? Well, I think that that's a really good question for people to ask um, because most investment books to me are pretty darn boring too and I've been in this business for lots of years. Most of them are written in a language that is foreign to most people. And one of the things I think I'm proudest about, Steve, is that my goal was to write this so that people could understand it. So I wrote it in everyday English. That's pretty unusual for investment books to be written like that. Another thing that sets it apart, I think, from other investment books um, is that I used cartoons. And I used a number of cartoons in each chapter to basically illustrate the points that I think people are going to want to remember. And I used lots of charts and graphs so that if they don't remember my words of wisdom, they'll certainly remember the cartoons and the charts and graphs. And this kind of to help reinforce it. So I think it's an easy, it's a really easy read and an easy book to understand, which was what my goal was. Well, with the market in dire straits today, would it be better just to cut or suspend, uh, you know, all my 401 contributions and save up to buy depressed real estate? I mean, what should I do? Uh, there's a lot of confusion. Well, you won't want to buy the book to find out what you should do today. You want to buy the book to find out what kind of, um, well, to really understand how to invest. Each chapter in my book is devoted to one of the basics of investing. You really need to know those basic elements so that you can become a successful investor. And each of those points is as germane in this troubled time that we're having today as it will be 10 and 20 years from now. Um, the time to be in the market is now. And a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, I don't think you should ever go out of the market. Now, you, should, you might want to change your strategy, but one of the basic principles of investing, Steve, is that you want to buy low and sell high. Well, would you not think that since things are kind of low now that this may not be a buying opportunity? Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, by the numbers, it would be the thing to do, that's for sure. Yeah, you never. And the whole idea is that when you're for your 401k or your IRA, if you're buying, and most people in this situation are buying like mutual fund shares, when if you are one of those people who puts in the same amount every month, when the market is down, you're buying more shares, and when the market is up, you're buying fewer shares of, of the high-priced shares. So and this is something called dollar cost averaging. The point of the whole thing is that most people, I'm not going to say everybody, but most people that actually follow that particular investment technique usually end up doing pretty well at the end of their, um, well, run in the market because they have actually stuck to the basics and they're buying at all times in the market. Well, the basics always seem in every uh, situation always seem to be the thing to focus on. If it's you know too good to, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, right? I think you're right. Absolutely. Um, if you stick to the basics, and I think we got away from that in the last few years, um, people started chasing yields and returns, and one of the things that I talk about, one of the chapters is devoted to your risk tolerance. You know, you're different from me, we're different from our next door neighbors. Everybody is different in terms of what they should be investing in, in terms of how much risk they want to assume. 
everything, no matter what you invest in, has risk associated with it. And how much of that are you willing to take? I'm convinced, Steve, that most people have no idea of how risky the particular investments that they have invested in actually are. One of the things I spend quite a bit of time dealing with, I have you take a quiz, first off, uh, so that you can determine, are you a person who wants to stick to low-risk investments, moderate, or you're an aggressive investor. <clears throat> That's what you need to know before you begin putting your investment plan together. Not every investment is, frankly, for every individual. But you need to know, and if you're just chasing yields, I can tell you right now, somebody like that is in dangerous territory because they're probably getting involved in investments that don't match their risk tolerance. But they don't know that. The world has really become a small place over the past um, few decades. Investing overseas was always so high risk. Uh, What is it today? Well, again, it's like any other type of investment. I have a chapter in the book, which is one of my favorite chapters, frankly, um, on global investing. And what you want to do is, I think for U.S. investors, a smart move is to invest through mutual funds or ADRs, which are an instrument that is it's kind of in the mutual fund family. But those then you have the protection of the U.S. securities rules and regulations. I think I personally think that's important. And when you're investing, you're not directly investing overseas. You're investing through this investment vehicle, let's just say a mutual fund for this moment. And you have professionals in this country as well as the particular countries that this fund is buying companies, shares of companies in. Um, you have that, you have the professionals that know those cultures. So let's say you're buying a China fund. A U.S. mutual fund company would be partnering with somebody in that part of the world that knows those companies, the cultures, the way they do business and so on. And I think it is less risky today if you're going and using mutual funds. It wasn't that many years ago when the large mutual fund companies, the names of which all of us would know, um, didn't even have international or global funds. So we've come a long way in those years. In fact, Steve, something that most people don't know, in 1990, uh, in the early 90s, I had a television show. And in those days, I had to go overseas to do the interviewing of the people in the various markets and U.S. business people in these various countries as, as well as foreign business people. And in those days, if you looked at all of the investment opportunities in the world, actually, 75% of them existed in the U.S. and only 25% abroad. Now today, in the 2000s, we're actually looking at just the opposite. Basically, only 25% of the investment opportunities that exist in the world are here in the U.S. And it's not that our market has shrunk. It's that the rest of the world has grown and matured. And has developed and there are lots of great opportunities out there and in my book on global investing there is a chapter excuse me on global investing one of the things that i've inserted in there are the credit ratings of various countries around the world so when you ask me how risky it is you really have to attach that to the particular country that you're investing in and then assess well is my return going to tempt me to maybe take a little more risk or do I want to stay safe? One of the things that would be interesting for your readers is to see where the U.S. is positioned compared to other countries around the world, where they are in that. So I'm not going to give it away. I'm going to suggest they buy the book and find it out. But those are the kinds of things that a reader would be able to sort out. And I think it's important to sort out before you just go out there and it's like sticking a, or throwing a dart at a board. Um, whichever one sticks is where you're going to invest. And I think you need to have a little bit more of a handle on what you invest in before you make that commitment. In a situa- and financial straight talk is going to help you. 
in a situation of a husband and wife where one may be real conservative, the other, boy, they want to go after it. They're aggressive. Uh, how do you work it out? How do you decide on your investment strategy? That's a good question, and it's also a tough one. But I think it's really important. You brought up a very good issue. Um, you really both want to take this quiz that I have in the book um, just to find that out. Where are you? Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, men are more aggressive in their investing than women are. Women tend to be more conservative. So that can be an issue. And sometimes part of the resolution is to kind of split up the way you invest the money. You might have some in the husband's name, and he can do anything he wants with that. He can be as aggressive as he wants with that. Um, we may have some in the wife's name, and she can invest the way she wants it to, um, as conservatively as she might want to invest. And then at some point, the couple is going to have to agree on how or, or what percentages they when they're investing together are going to put in conservative, moderate, and let's just say more aggressive. So that might be the solution. Uh, there's a whole lot of other ways to take a look at this particular issue, but that certainly is one, is that you, you, and you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. I would suggest that you don't want to, if you're an aggressive investor, you don't want to have everything in um, small caps and in the higher risk items. You want to have a certain percentage of your portfolio more moderately invested. What about gold or silver? What about them, Steve? What about investing in gold stocks or, you know, in those kinds of uh, assets? Is that a good thing to be doing today? Well, I think gold, personally, uh, that gold is very high now. Not saying it may not get a little higher, but um, it does it fit in, I would say to you, does it fit into your investment plan? And I personally would not advocate unless you have a lot of money buying individual gold stocks or buying um, it that way, I think I would spread the risk and utilize mutual funds. I mean, for the average investor, that is a far better way. Let the professionals manage the money. And yes, there's a cost for that. But I would feel more secure in people doing that than them just going out and buying gold stocks or silver, whatever the situation might be. I think that's a smarter move. Why don't you give but us... Any, okay. I'm sorry. Why don't you give us a closing statement? We've got about a minute. Well, I think that this is a book that is really for any age group. The people who are just starting out in their career, up to those people who are a few years out from retirement, as well as those people who are actually retired but are left to their own devices to make the selections. So I think no matter what, the steps that the book takes you through, each chapter is a step, and each of those steps is really the basics to investing. The book is about the basics of investing. And as I said before, the basics are never going to go out of fashion. Dee, how do we get your book? Well, you could go to right now. Uh, it will be in bookstores. Um, right now, they're just in the process. Author House is the publisher. And they're just in the process of um, contacting the bookstores. It's only been live for two weeks. So at this point in time, you could go to my website or blog. My website is www.financialstraighttalk.com, or my blog is d-d-e-e-m-o-s-i-e-r-blog.com. And on the homepage of each of those, you can scroll down to a copy of the book, and you'll see the picture. Uh, it's a red and white book, 
And the name of it is Financial Straight Talk, Road to Retirement. Click on the book. You'll go to author houses um, directly to their ordering um, page. And you can order it in the paperback version or ebook version. Well, Dee, we want to thank you for all these insights and uh, help for us uh, looking toward Road to Retirement and uh, your book, Financial Straight Talk, Road to Retirement. Thanks so much for being on Author Talk. Thank you. That was Dee Mosier. She is the author of her book, Financial Straight Talk, Road to Retirement. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Odyssey, from Blue Collar, Ohio, to Super Bowl champion. And the author, Aaron Smith. And Aaron joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Aaron. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Well, we're excited to talk about Odyssey, from Blue Collar, Ohio, to Super Bowl champion. Let me read what you have written about your book. You say this... This book is about a regular guy who overcame more obstacles than he'd like to count in order to accomplish an audacious goal set as a third grader. The struggles he endured growing up in Norwood, Ohio, the thrilling adventure he found himself in while playing a game he loved, and the success he can now call himself will show readers that they shouldn't shy away from lofty goals. Well, the name of the man is Mark Edwards professional football player, Super Bowl winner. Who in the heck is Mark Edwards, and why did you write the book? <laughs> well, well, it's a, yeah, like I said in the, in the introduction of the book, the first uh, line is, you know, why did you write about Mark Edwards? Um, well, when I moved, I, I lived in California for a couple of years, and um, I, I had been a sports editor for several years before that. And when I moved back to Cincinnati, I wanted to. I was thinking about writing a book, um, and I wanted to compile a lot of a lot of inspirational stories. Because one of the best things about being a sports editor and a sports writer was coming across these stories of these kids that were overcoming obstacles, or you know, there's so many issues that they had to overcome, and they become successful in life. And I just think that's one of the best things about sports. And when I got back to Cincinnati, I, I approached area athletic directors um, and asked if they could submit some, you know, people that I could talk to um, and maybe get this story on, you know, moving. And then one of the athletic directors said simply in an email, you should write about Mark Edwards. Well, I've been a football fan my whole life. I had, I had heard of Mark Edwards. I knew a little bit about who he was, but I was interested in finding out about why he, you know, could be, a, you know, a, a chapter in this, in this book. Uh, the more I talked to his former coach, Jim Barry, and then, then I called up Mark and talked to him, 
the more I talked to them, I realized this story shouldn't be just part of a compilation, but rather that it could stand alone as, you know, as the subject of the book. So he wasn't an MVP in his league. Uh, he never rushed for a thousand yards, but he is the type of regular guy that just attained great success in many areas of his life. Yeah, exactly. He he wasn't he wasn't these guys that you see on the headlines of uh, you know the newspapers every morning. But he's he's one of those guys that you know is makes up probably ninety percent of what NFL players are are people like Mark. These are the guys that they go home, they go home with their, see their family, they see their kids, they take care of them, they go through the same struggles as you and I. And he didn't have this path was not just handed to him. He, he had a lot of struggles at home growing up. Um, there was a divorce in his family, alcoholism in his family. Um, his father was not a major part of his life, and he became the first person in his family to go on to college. So yeah, there, this is a story that I think resonates with a lot of people, football fans and non-football fans. I think most people have seen the movie Rudy, of course, mm-hmm. about the walk-on at Notre Dame. And uh, Mark Edwards played at Notre Dame. I mean, Lou Holtz, his coach, and he was that type of a guy, like a Rudy. Right, and, and the interesting uh, connection between Rudy and Mark, um, they are the only two people in the entire history of the Notre Dame program to be carried off the field by their teammates. Uh, Rudy was the first one, obviously, in the mid-'70s after he got to his sack in the first game he ever played in. Mark uh, was carried off, the, carried off the field on the shoulders of his teammates after just an incredible game against rival USC at home, and he just had his best game of his career that night. Um, but yeah, he's the, he's the same type of player, you know, unheralded. Um, you know, he was Mr. Football in the state of Ohio as a high school player, but he played at a small school. And when he went to Notre Dame, no one really gave him any any chance to succeed. And then he broke the freshman rushing record for touchdowns at, at Notre Dame, um, became a captain at Notre Dame, but then no one thought he would ever play in the NFL. So he was that type of player that you, you never really got the credit until maybe after he did it. No one ever thought he could ever accomplish that. So you're presenting a book with a regular guy, just like one of us, who grew up on shaky ground in uncertain times, and he wasn't perfect, and his family was far from perfect. And you believe that we can relate to this, and this is why this story resonates so much with the reader. Yeah, especially especially now with the economy the way it is, I think a lot of people are struggling and trying to find some way to succeed and I think a lot of times you know people are being held back or they're feeling frustrated and they don't you know have that motivation to just break out of these cycles you know what's interesting is I had somebody who read this book and called me up and said you know this is this was really inspiring I'm going to have my son read it um, he's a he wants to be a football player and he's getting involved then he calls me up later and he goes you know what there's a high school football player um, in Kentucky he's going through similar issues I'm, and, and I, I know this book will inspire him so he bought another book and he's going to send it to this guy so he can read it and I think that that kind of developed as the goal of this book I think people can take so much from it that there are people going through these similar situations a lot of people going through these the, the same situations as Mark and I just think this gives them a little hope that says yes that you know, if you do make a goal and if you do work at it, you know you'll you can get there. And it doesn't have to be football, though. And because of your sports background, your sports writer, many years, you take us to places we've never gone as sports fans, like the inside view of a practice with Coach Lou Holtz. Yeah, and what's interesting, what I love to read in sports books and what I like to, you know, focus in the writing that I work on is, you know, as sports fans, you know, we see what's on TV, we see the games, we see, you know, what's presented to us on Sports Center, but we don't see what, what happens inside the clubhouse, the behind the scenes. We don't see what happens during practice and the relationships between the players and the players and their families. And we, when we get to know the, the, the football player on a more intimate level like that, to see what they're doing, you know, behind you know what's splashed on the TVs or in the front pages of the newspapers, I think you get to connect to them a lot better. And once you connect to these players, uh, it just makes what they do so much more important to you. And you can, like, I, like you had mentioned, it, it resonates with you and it inspires you. Now you also take us behind the scenes in the NFL scouting combine. Uh, give us a little preview of that with this through the eyes of Mark Edwards. Yeah, the scouting combine is is it's a very interesting four day event. Um, 
you know, it just recently became more mainstream as far as being covered. But basically, I mean, it, it is a veritable meat market. You know, you have scouts, you have coaches with, you know, with clocks, and they're measuring speed, they're measuring, you know, body fat, they're putting you through, you know, Mark went through 30 physicals in the, in the span of one day. And that's, that tends to be, you know, a bit much. And he, all the while, he's got to be interviewed, and he's, and he's rushing from one room to another room to talk to the Washington Redskins, the 49ers. You know, all of these different teams want to know all this information about him. He's got to take drug testing. He's got to do on-field testing. He's got to take the Wonderlic test. And it's just, it's just a blur of four days, and it kind of shows a little microcosm of what this sport has become and what, and what people put into it. it it's, it's really unreal. And, of course, the emotional drama of the NFL draft, just sure. wondering if you're going to be picked all your life, you've been working toward this, and it comes right. down to the big moment. Right, yeah. I mean, just imagine, like you said, you know, working your whole life or something, and then on one day you'll figure out you know, if this dream is going to come true. And it's he he celebrated. He he went to a local bar here in Cincinnati, a, a bar and restaurant, and with all of his former teammates and friends and family, and they were all excited for the big the big moment. And here they are waiting and waiting. You know, after an hour, only four people have been drafted, and then you start to realize that this day is going to last forever. It's going to be a long, long day. But when you get that call, when you get that call from from a head coach or from a general manager that says, you know what, you're the next, you're the next person to wear this uniform. Um, the relief and just the just the stress of the day just gets lifted, and it's, it really is, you know, quite, quite a scene. And all the while, Mark is trying to raise a family and be the good husband and good father that he needs to be. Right, yeah, and and this and this was as important to him as playing in the NFL because, as I had mentioned before, he kind of grew up in an environment that wasn't that wasn't the most comfortable or the most stable, and he vowed to himself before he had even before he had even you know met Darcy, his wife, or had any kids, that if he was going to have a family, he was going to do it the right way. He was going to be involved and he was going to take care of them. And as I mentioned, this was as important, if not more important, to him than reaching the NFL. And and um, he is now he now has four kids. He's he's very involved. He's been married for 12 years. He he has kept up his end of the end of the promise. So he was going to give his all on the football field and then go home and give his all there. There's no doubt, absolutely. Well, take us a little bit into the the run for Super Bowl champion and the part that Mark played in a little little preview. Well, yeah, he he was drafted by the 49ers, played for them for a couple of years, but then was traded to the Cleveland Browns, which was an expansion team at the time. And they were just—it was an awful, awful experience for him there. The coaches and, and it didn't, the, the philosophy didn't mesh. He didn't get very many, very much playing time, and he became a free agent after two years of just struggling in Cleveland. He decided to sign on with the New England Patriots, and they told him right away that he was going to have a major part in what they do. He was going to be their starting fullback. You know, he needed to be prepared to catch the ball out of the backfield. He needed to run, and most importantly, he needed to block. And um, just being wanted by a team was a stark contrast to his years in Cleveland. And um, it, it was just—it was a remarkable year because that was the year that uh, 9/11 occurred, and you know there was just a lot of stuff going on with that. And one of his teammates, Joe Andruzzi, his brothers were involved. They were firefighters in New York City, and just the drama surrounding that, um, you know, kind of galvanized that team. There, there were just a lot of struggles. Their starting quarterback, you know, was injured for the year, um, sheared an artery in his chest. It was just—they overcame—they overcame so many things that year. It was almost a microcosm of Mark whole life of overcoming obstacles to get to the next step and uh, somehow some way they beat the heavily favored um, St. Louis Rams that year it was just uh, it was an incredible year how did you get to know Mark well I, I got to know Mark um, I called uh, I was talking with his former high school coach and he gave me his number and I talked to Mark on a number of occasions and then I went down and uh, he lives in Jacksonville now 
and I drove down and spent uh, spent about four days with Mark and his family in Jacksonville and really got to know who he was as a person. He got to know who I was, and, and he, the more he got comfortable with me, the more he talked about his story. And it was a, it was a good four days of just you know getting to know who he was and whether or not you know this story you know had legs. And the more I talked to him, it was just I thought this was a very it was an incredible story, and I thought one that a lot of people can resonate with. And um, yeah, it was just it was a good four days. And family played an important part in Mark's uh, quest for success. Right. Yeah, he was. Um, Along with the instability of his, you know, with his mother and his father, um, his aunt Cheryl was was a godsend. She she was only, I believe, seven years older than Mark, um, and she kind of took on, you know, a parental role as they as they both got older. She, you know, she would work at a fast food place and then save all the single to give to Mark and his and his brother. Um, she was always there. She would go to the school if they ever needed to have a meeting with the principal or somebody at school. She she was the main contact for him. Um, and also his grandmother. His grandmother, um, she took care of the day to day, you know, care at home. She cooked for him, helped him, you know, just supported him 100%. Was always there for them. She she was an amazing woman. And then there were a couple of behind-the-scenes type type of guys. Uh, a man by the name he just called himself Blackie was a was a father of um, one of Mark's uh, one of Mark's aunt's friends, and he he would support them financially when there was no money elsewhere. And he provided stability with to Cheryl, kind of talked to her about family issues, about how to how to keep them you know above water. And there were just so many of these little you know behind-the-scenes factors that just helped keep Mark on track. It was really it was really incredible. When when somebody wasn't able to provide, there was somebody else there to step up, and I think that was extremely important in who Mark is today. The title of the book, Odyssey, from Blue Collar, Ohio, to Super Bowl champion, the story of Mark Edwards, just a regular guy like you and me, but was focused, determined, and took the high road and gained great success. Well, Aaron, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can visit my uh, website. It's www.aaronmsmith.com. It'll have links to all the various Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Author House on how, to, um, on how to publish a book, or how to purchase a book, excuse me. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you, Aaron. Sure, I appreciate your time. That was Aaron Smith. He is the author of his book, Odyssey from Blue Collar, Ohio to Super Bowl champion.